What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life, featuring the exposit story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. Baldhead Bible Podcast is committed to keeping our show free to the public. However, as with everything, there are expenses involved, so if you would like to contribute, head on over to patreon.com, that's patreon.com forward slash baldhead bible, and there you can become a supporting member for as low as $1 a month. While there, please check out some of the bonus material available only to our BHBP supporters. And some of that material includes Bible study guides to help you use the podcast to minister to your children, to minister in a Sunday school class, and to have some quality family devotions. At the end of 2 Samuel here, we find a poem written by David. And it's pretty much word for word found in Psalm 18. The poem in 2 Samuel chapter 22 begins this way. Verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, And my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. This is basically Psalm 18 and it's here in 2 Samuel 22. And and the writer is putting it here because at this point in David's story, We're pulling in a whole bunch of different stories to make a theological point. And I think the big point is this, that God was with David. Yahweh was with David. David's exploits, David's achievements were all because, as it says there, Yahweh is worthy to be praised because David made the Lord his rock. David didn't make himself his rock. He made Yahweh his rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge again and again in the Psalms. David says that. And here at the end of 2 Samuel 22, the writer is using that Psalm to make a point. And to make the point even further, he pulls up stories to show some of the exploits of David and how in the end he had to face and deal with and rely on and go to God every single time. And one of the first stories he brings up in 2 Samuel 21, it's a tragic story, really. It's a sad story, and it begins right away with famine. It says that Israel had been... Without the ability to grow food, rain had not fallen for over three years. And there was a great famine, which means there were people starving. They couldn't grow crops to eat. 
In this famine, David is thinking, I don't think this is just a famine. We always have famine. There are parts of the world right now that have immense drought and they can't grow anything. And there is famine throughout the world. But for David, this famine was a sign from God. And it says there that in 2 Samuel 21 that David sought the face of the Lord. He sought the face of Yahweh. Again, going back to that psalm that he wrote, right? The Yahweh is my rock and my refuge. Time and again, we've seen in the book of 2 Samuel, David, when faced with some great tragedy or, or what should I do, he goes to Yahweh. He sought his face. Unlike Saul, who did stuff in his own strength, who said, I'm going to sacrifice even though I don't have the right to do it before Samuel gets here because I'm Saul and I can do it. And David, on the other hand, should I do it, Lord? I'm going to consult you. I'm, I'm going to ask you, Lord, what should I do? And David here, it says, when he was faced with this three-year famine, he sought the Lord's face. He asked him, Yahweh, what should I do? Again, he is a man after God's own heart. That should be our response when we're faced with some great struggle or some great tragedy to say, I need to seek God. I need to ask him some questions. I need to see if there's something within me that needs to be changed. Is, is this thing that's happening to me divine punishment? Well, it was. It was. In fact, Yahweh says, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. And this famine is because of that blood guilt. Basically, Saul had made a treaty, an oath, a vow with a group of people, and he went back on it. And because he went back on it, he didn't just go back on it. He went back on it by killing some of their people. And this was an oath that was binding, that couldn't be taken away. And it was an oath made before God. And when Saul went back on it, it caused Yahweh to say, I've got to send this famine. This isn't right what you did, Saul. And nobody's taking care of it. Because at this point, Saul is dead. Saul is gone. He's not here. But yet David is suffering the consequences of what Saul did. What is this blood guilt that Saul did? Well, it says there in 2 Samuel 21, at some point he put some of the Gibeonites to death. Now, if you remember all the way back in our series on Joshua... Joshua was raiding into the land, right? He had just conquered Jericho and he was moving into the land and they were taking over everything. And this tribe of the Gibeonites saw the writing on the wall. They were about to be wiped out. So they put on all this clothing and made it look like they had traveled far. And please show us mercy because we're not in this Canaan land naturally. We're from far away and we just happen to show up. And so they tricked Joshua. And when Joshua finds out, you know, he wants to kill them because Joshua ends up making a pact with them that says, all right, you will be our slaves. We won't kill you. 
We're supposed to kill everybody. That's the divine commandment of the Lord. And we're supposed to wipe you out. But because you're not a part of the land of Canaan, in fact, what we'll do instead is we will make an oath with you and we'll vow before the Lord that we will not kill you. Instead, you will be our slaves forever. And you will work for us, but we won't kill you. And the Gibeonites are like, yes. Well, when Joshua found out, he was furious. But he made this vow. He couldn't go back on it. He made this vow before Yahweh. The Gibeonites may have lied and tricked him into it, but God said, you made this vow. You should have checked things out. It's your fault, Joshua. This vow stands. Well, it seems like Saul, at some point, it doesn't say anywhere, and none of the none of the writers say they can find it in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, book of Joshua, you know, Judges. They can't find it anywhere what exactly Saul did, but at some point he broke that vow, and he killed a bunch of Gibeonites. Well, Yahweh says, that's not right. You've broken your vow to me. Therefore, I'm going to send you this famine. Well, this famine spread throughout all Israel, and David finds out it's because of what Saul had done. So David then goes to the Gibeonites and says, what would you like us to do? How can we make this right? So the Gibeonites said, all right, this is what we want you to do. We don't want money. You can't pay us back for killing some of our people. We'll never be able to get those people back. Those were friends and family, and money just won't cut it. We need something more than that. So they said, you know what we want? We want life for life. There was this law in that area, and the Old Testament sometimes reflects some of this, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you broke my tooth, well, before the law, you'd lose a tooth. If you took money from me, I could take money from you. And if somebody was killed because of what I did, I needed to be killed. And we still have that, you know, the death penalty. You killed somebody, you deserve to die. Well, they said, listen, we lost these people, and what we want is death for death, life for life. You took the lives of some of our people. We want seven of the sons of Saul. And I want you to give them to us so that we can hang them before the Lord at Gibeah. That's what we want. <sighs> That's pretty heavy. That's tough. Because Saul's dead, and there's not a lot of his offspring left, but David says, all right, I'll do it. Now, some people are confused over what David's doing here, and some people say David did this deliberately so that he could wipe out any of the remaining Saulites who were trying to take over his throne. Remember when Absalom took over? There were some of the house of Saul who said, we're going to follow Absalom. And so some people say, David, use this, because nowhere does it say that God demanded this. This was more the Gibeonites wanted it. Others say, no, this goes back to the book of Deuteronomy and, and what the Gibeonites asked was proper and right according to Old Testament law. Life for a life, death for death. 
I don't know. It sort of comes down to how you view David. Was he a manipulative politician? Me, I, I think David was a man after God's own heart, and he failed again and again. He was morally not perfect, but ultimately he did what was right. I think David was clear here. Old Testament law says we have to pay this back, life for life. And this makes total sense to me, says David. And so he rounds up seven descendants of Saul and he gives them to the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites then take them and they hang them. And it says that one of the mothers, Rizpah, is so overtaken in grief. And she lays down the sackcloth. And back then, when you were in great grieving, you would wear sackcloth. It's this itchy cloth, like camel hair, that would constantly itch you. And it said she laid down this cloth underneath the bodies that were hung, and she would chase away all the birds, and she would chase away all the animals that would try to come to feed on these bodies. And she laid on this cloth. Why? Because she wanted to sleep. But she didn't want to sleep in comfortability. She wanted to sleep on this itchy, nasty sackcloth. And she slept there throughout the night. And then she would get up and chase off animals. And during the day, she would chase animals away to try to keep these bodies from being eaten. And when David hears this... He's moved. And he grieves with the house of Saul, but he also understands what happened to the Gibeonites. But he sees this mother who is weeping. She lost two sons in all this. Two of the people hanging there were her children. And seeing those people hanging there reminded David of Saul and Jonathan do you remember way back, they were fighting and they were defeated and then they were hung on a wall and then the men of Jabesh Gilead came and took them off the wall? Do you remember that? And they gave him a proper burial? Well, David remembers that and he's like, I, I need to reunite all these people together. I need to give all these people a proper burial. And it says he goes to Jabesh Gilead, retrieves the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and then he comes and takes down these bodies of these seven descendants of Saul and he gives them all a proper burial back in their home tribal area. And then it says, the rain began to fall. That's when the rain began to fall. And again, it's an interesting story to me. Is God raining down now because the vow was appeased according to the Old Testament law? Or is God now raining down because this sin that David had done to Saul's descendants was now properly taken care of and buried. And the great theologians and commentators debate that, but ultimately I think God saw the vow was taken care of. And so therefore, he took back his wrath and the rain began to fall. Man, that's an interesting story to me. I think it's interesting that God says your oaths matter. 
the vows you make before me matter. They better be honest. They better be true if you do make a vow. I also think it's interesting that what you do affects other people, you know? Saul killed the Gibeonites. To obey Yahweh, he ends up breaking a vow that Joshua had made. And man, Saul, what you did impacted David in his time. You know, I just think it's obvious. Parents, what you do impacts your children. Children, what you do impacts others around you. And maybe not even just for this generation, but generations to come. You got to remember what we do. We are not an island unto ourselves. The world doesn't just revolve around us. What we do impacts other people. Well, the rain falls. And now David, David now reflects back on some of the great men that he fought with. Because it says there in 2 Samuel chapter 21, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel. Many commentators say David was getting older. This whole part isn't extra battles against the Philistines because David had taken care of the Philistines earlier. This is more a recounting, a recollection of David on how God was his refuge, how God was his strength. I think that's what we're seeing here. David says, I'm stuck with this famine. I don't know what to do. God is my refuge. God is my strength. I'm going to go seek him. Hey, now let me tell you a story about how God was my refuge and God was my strength. And the story is based on the battles with his greatest foe, the Philistines. But what's really interesting is each one of these Philistines that he fought, that he tells this story about, were giants. The first one he fought was named Ishbi Benob. What a cool, weird name. Ishbi Benob. And it says one of the descendants of the giants who had a spear that weighed 300 shekels of bronze. Whoa, 300 shekels of bronze. So again, it's about seven pounds of bronze here. This was a heavy spear. And it says it was armed with a new sword, and Ishbi Benob comes charging towards David, and it says David is growing weary. Maybe this occurred when he was older, or maybe David was always the center of attack. Everybody knew if we cut off the head of David, we're going to kill all of Israel. We won't have to fight the rest of them, but they could never get David. And this might have been recounting where David had fought off attack on himself in every single battle. Well, Ishbi Benob, this giant with this huge spear and a sword finally gets David so exhausted. He's coming towards him. He is going to be able to finally kill the great King David when, out of nowhere, Abishai, the son of Zariah, comes hurtling in and he attacks this gigantic Philistine and defeats him. And Abishai and the rest of Israel say, hey, David, don't you ever go into battle again. If you die, the lamp of Israel is going to go out. Well, Ishbi Benob is defeated. And then, again, there's war with the Philistines at Gob. And Sibekai, the Hushthetite, he struck down Saph, 
who again was a giant. S-A-P-H, Saf the giant, was killed by Sibakai of the Hushathites. Let's just say Shibakai killed Saf the giant. And there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. It says, And Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, he struck down Goliath the Gittite, who again was a giant. Now, we've heard that name before, right? Goliath? Well, the Goliath David killed was from Gath, and this was Goliath from Gittite. So two different giants. In the book of Chronicles, it relates the same story. And they say that David killed the brother of Goliath, which is Lami. So ultimately, we don't know exactly the name of this giant we killed because there seems to be some differences between the two versions of the same story. But we do know this. They weren't the same person as the first original Goliath that David killed. But secondly, we know this. He was a giant. He was a giant. And again, he had a spear so big, the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam. Which basically means he had a massive spear. Goliath, or Lami, whoever this was, he was a giant. Saf was a giant. And then we had... Ishbi Benab, he was a giant. And then it says David finally fought, or Israel fought, against another Philistine, and this time at this town called Gath. And there, a man with six fingers and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and it says they fought him, and he was descended from the giants. And this Six-fingered, six-toed man, he taunted Israel and he made fun of them. Until Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. These four battles, these four men who threatened Israel were all giants. One of them was a descendant from Rapha or a descendant of the Raphaim. And that, to me, is very interesting. The Philistines seem to have this line of gigantic men who fought for them. And many people believe these giants, if you look at the story in Joshua, if you look at the story in Deuteronomy, these giant clans show up again and again. And they seem to be a great terror in that region. The Anakim were giants. The Raphaim were giants. The Zimzumarim were giants. The Anakim in particular, do you remember? Caleb defeated... I think it's interesting that the writer of 2 Samuel wants to point out David defeated these giant clans because I think these giant clans were a sign of something bigger. I think it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 and the Nephilim. Because it says in Genesis chapter 6 that that's when the Nephilim, you know, when the, when the demonic beings, the sons of little g gods, left their domain and came down and they 
procreated with human women and they produced the men of renown. It says the Nephilim, the, these half divine, half human beings, half, you know, and this was a major transgression. I mean, one of the reasons God sent the flood was because of that, right? Well, it says that they were then, but then they were after. Somehow the remnants descended and stayed after. And I think that's what you see here are these giant clans where remnants of these gigantic evil beings. Because the Nephilim were seen historically as giants. And it seems like there is this evil lineage from the Nephilim all the way to the Raphaim and the Anakim. They're all connected in this evil lineage, which is so fascinating to me. It's like God gives you just a little glimpse of the supernatural world that is out there. But to David and his men, I think it was very obvious. Goliath, Ishbibinab. Six-fingered toad man, Saf. All these are gigantic, part of the giant clans who have a connection all the way back to Genesis 6. And I think the writer's saying there was spiritual evil in that land. And in particular, this spiritual evil came through the Philistines in the days of David. How? Why? There's lots of reasons and lots of interesting reading out there, but ultimately there's a connection through the Nephilim and who they were and the Anakim and where they came from and where the Philistines ultimately came from. But remember, what does that psalm say? The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. The writer of 2 Samuel is showing David defeated this demonic, evil line mixed with human. That's the way it is today, right? We have the natural world, which we live in, but there is this supernatural world that impacts our daily lives. There is a supernatural war going on between angels and demons, and there's a whole supernatural understanding that we barely get a glimpse of, and the Bible says don't pursue it. Don't look after dark and evil things. But I do want you to know in these little instances, it's there. The supernatural impinges on our world. But don't be scared. Don't be afraid. David and his men defeated him. And you can too. How? But taking refuge in the Lord. By taking refuge in who he is. And, and that's where David then writes the song of deliverance, right? It becomes Psalm 18. And David just, just tells the world about how the Lord is his refuge. And how the waves of death encompassed him. And he, in distress he called upon Yahweh. And time and time again in this psalm, in this poem, it says the Lord thundered from heaven. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. The Lord was my support. Yahweh was my rock and my refuge. And he just cries out to the Lord and says, thank you. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. For who is God but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong 
refuge. Again and again in the psalm, David says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. And I just want to say that at the end of 2 Samuel, this is like a celebration. David is just celebrating with us how God took care of him. And yes, he nearly lost it all under Absalom. And yes, he had to pay the price for this terrible sin that Saul had done earlier. But at the end of the day, you can trust in Yahweh because he does what is right. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. And exalted be my God the rock of my salvation. So I just want to encourage you this week. Don't be discouraged if you are about events around you and world events or local events. I don't know what sort of mountain you're facing right now, but I keep thinking I'm not in battle against a six-fingered, six-toed giant who's probably got a massive sword who could just club me with it once and kill me. I didn't have to go into battle alone against that giant. No matter what giant you face, try not to look at it just from a natural perspective, but realize there's a supernatural perspective too. And you can trust that the supernatural perspective is based on God and his sovereign control over everything. Do not worry. Do not be afraid. David ends this psalm. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And if you know the Lord as your Savior, if you've asked him to save you, you're part of that great salvation. You're part of that. Don't worry. Jesus has you. He'll take care of you. Face your giants with confidence this week. Whatever they happen to be, face them with confidence, knowing that the Lord, Yahweh, is your rock and your refuge, and he is your God. Thank you for listening to Baldhead Bible Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can comment on our Facebook page or email us at baldheadbible at gmail.com. If you would like to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash baldheadbible. Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life. New episodes added every week.